You're listening to Thaisi Women Diaspora, Episode 5. Welcome listeners to Thaisi Women Diaspora, a podcast about South Asian women who grew up around the world. I'm your host, Mala Kumar. On this episode, we finish our interview with Dr. Gayathri Sethi, a professor based out of the Atlanta area. In part one of our conversation, Gayathri discussed growing up in Tanzania and Botswana and how the transferable knowledge of her childhood in Black Africa informed her assimilation into the United States and made her, as she described, culturally humble to Black people. Here's a replay of the last few minutes of part one, followed immediately by part two. When I first came to the U.S., the majority of the children I interacted with in the after-school program I used to volunteer at, in the neighborhood schools and so on, were African-American children. The people who connected with me and invited me in in the spirit of, come on in, oh, you're an international student, come have Thanksgiving with us, African-American, right? So between my friend Sherry and the Coleman's, you know, that was the first experience I had. My first Thanksgiving dinner as an international student, first time in America, was with a black family. And I learned very quickly the black and white version of America. And I was invited into the black America. And I feel very honored and humbled by that. Mm-hmm. And I began to develop something that I started to learn when I was growing up brown in Africa is the, this, this notion of cultural humility. If there's something I learned being brown in, in black Africa is that that's not my space but I'm resident there, so I better show respect. So when I came to America, I learned that real quick too. It was transferable knowledge that I am so grateful I had because many immigrants to America do not have that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. So they come in and become white adjacent and start to absorb themselves into and assimilate themselves into white American. Many, many South Asians do that. Like the majority of the ones that I know have done that. Mm-hmm. Their world becomes very white. Well, I was very fortunate, blessed or otherwise just, I don't know what the word is, but that's not how it went down for me. Uh, for me, I was welcomed into Black America. I was invited to Black churches. I was invited to come and listen to my friend Chantel sing with her gospel group. I was invited to come to Sumter, South Carolina to go visit a new college friend who showed me that America and trusted me enough to invite me into those spaces. And that was where my identity began to shift as someone who was culturally humble towards Black people. Yeah, no, it's a it's an interesting concept because I think in any country, there's always some kind of social hierarchy and often it'll be brown just above Black. And whether it's perceived or real, I don't know, but it's it's always, it's always there. And often we talk about it in terms of colorism. Sometimes it's definitely blatant racism. Yes. Um, what was it like for you to come in and realize that the people that externally who would associate you to felt that way? Because we all know that there's a lot of racism. There's a lot of colorism within the South Asian community towards Black people in America. So what was that like to realize that? You know, it was a big aha. And it was also, it reminded me of the fire I used to get in my belly when I would visit my Indian relatives in India. And I would hear my aunties and my grandparents say to me, oh, you may live in Africa, but you're not going to marry a Black man. They would say that in Hindi, and I don't want to repeat mm-hmm. that because it's offensive. Uh, I'd rather leave it translated. Um, but, you know, like I was 14 when I first started hearing that kind of commentary, and something in my fire, in my gut would light up because I realized that that is not something I believe in. I, I, I knew it. I didn't have the words for it, 
but that was maybe the birth of who I am because I'm that nah person. I'm like, nah, no. And that is what happened when I came to the U.S. and the other South Asian and diaspora. South Asians who grew up in the U.S. really didn't associate with me because once we got to talking, it was very clear that I didn't share those colorist views mm-hmm. or I didn't share those elitist views and I didn't share the model minority myth. Mm-hmm. I didn't believe in any of that, but they were living that reality. Mm-hmm. And so we clashed. So the people I most, again, got along with were, were by and large African-Americans. So it was not an accident that when someone invited me out on a date, more than likely they were black. I, I, it, that's just how it panned out. And yes, I did meet my partner, Charles, in Chicago at the University of Chicago. He was a graduate student there. Oh, wow. Okay, nice. You yeah. guys go way, way back. <laughs> we do. Uh-huh. Yeah, that's great. Congratulations on the almost 20 years. Oh, my word. And you know that's hard work. Yeah. <laughs> I'm only on year two, so I can only imagine. Oh man. Um yeah, no, that's it's really interesting. I uh, there's I think there's a lot of reasons why that colorism and racism exists. A lot of it is just stupid bias, honestly, but then a lot of it is the pattern of immigration for a lot of Indians, especially who come to the states, come as engineers, as doctors, sometimes as lawyers or whatever else. And by association because of all the systemic racism and all the discrimination over the very complex history of America, they get exposed to that power, which is white in America. They do. And and I think that it's unusual, unheard of, unless you are one of those people who's inclined to actually seek out that information. You Mm -hmm. really don't learn the true history of America. You don't learn about the indigenous people, Mm -hmm. you know, of whom there was a genocide. You don't necessarily learn about the black history. You may know bits and pieces, Mm -hmm. but you don't understand that this is systemic. And from the very birth of America, this is a thing. And that you then arrive into this new land, uh, semi-clueless, and sometimes you choose that cluelessness by you know, aligning yourself with power and with privilege. Um, and then you end up doing harm to the people that this country was built on the backs of. And that's something that I'm constantly teaching about in the classroom now. You know, as a college level professor, I'm constantly teaching that version of how do we decolonize our education. Um, you know, we've got to know what's happening and how we are participating in these systems. Yeah, absolutely. And do you feel like over the course of your years in teaching that uh-huh. the South Asian community specifically has kind of become more attuned to that? Because now we're getting into the second, third, solidly the second and third generations of South Asians in the States, like not just like a one-off here or there, but as kind of a community of people. And I feel yeah. like at least my peer group is becoming more aware of that, but I'm not sure yeah. as an educator, if you've got a different, like a different. You know, those who fall under millennials and younger, I really am optimistic for. I am because I, you know, when they show up to my classrooms and I start going down this path, they get it and they reset. However, they struggle. They struggle because their parents are in a different place and what they were taught. What I teach in the classroom is drastically not in coherence with what they learned either in school or from their families. Um, And, but they get it. They so get it. And they want to be part of a solidarity building. They want to be Brown folks for black lives. That is who my students are, and they're in their 20s. So I'm really optimistic. But anytime I have a conversation with somebody who's in their 30s or 40s, and I bring this up, Lord, that's exhausting. I'd rather talk to white people, honestly. The white allies is sometimes less exhausting than our brown folks who refuse to acknowledge that we are part of the problem. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. If I say the words white supremacy is real and we're participating in it, I get all kinds. I can't all kinds of commentary from my brown brothers and uncles. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. And um, so I am that one in my family. You know, many people in my family do not associate with me, partly going back to, you know, whatever they see cultural norms. I, I violated when I married a black man. So that's mm-hmm. still a thing. You know, when we when we asked for permission to marry, you know, many of our extended relatives were very displeased with that. And they actually didn't allow their daughters to attend our wedding because they didn't, quote unquote, want their daughters getting the wrong idea. My parents, however, don't roll that way. So they were very embracing. They gave the blessing. You know, they embraced Charles. They, you know, embraced Charles's son. So not only did I marry a black man, but he'd been previously married and we had a son already. <laughs> you know, so let's talk about all the ways I'm violating the Indian cultural norms of girlhood, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, those young people have not changed their minds or hearts and have not embraced us. Yeah. Do you feel like your kids now are privy to at least having some sense of a South Asian identity or has that been kind of wiped out along the way of all of the different barriers? Not necessarily. I mean, they, not necessarily here. It gets so complicated now, right? Because I want them to love who they are and know all of their heritages and cultures. Now they've been back to Botswana to visit my family multiple times. So they understand that context and they understand that that's the context that shaped their mother in many ways. So they get that. They don't speak much Hindi, partly because Hindi wasn't a language in which I knew how to parent, or at least not the way I wanted to parent. Mm -hmm. I didn't want to parent the way I was parented. So that was one of those things I, and so choosing to parent in a different language was, was very intentional on my part. But unfortunately that meant that I don't have that, that access point into, to Indian culture is not open for my children yet. Um, They're 14 and 11. And uh, we are planning our very first trip to India to happen uh, within the next couple of months. And it's taken a lot of preparation for that. Uh, It has taken a lot of getting ready for that and to be ready to experience that and connect with it in a meaningful way. So we're ready. We're we're ready to take those next steps into that journey of understanding that part of our identities and cultures. The way that I tell my students is that, you know, Black people are not capable of racism. The, The very definition of racism means that Black people can't be racist. So I often use a different word. Um, you know, it could be colorism, it could be prejudice, you know, and it could be a lot of different things. Um, the, I must say that in our family's experience, when we go to the Indian, all Indian gatherings, we face a lot of non-acceptance. When we go to African-American ones, we do not. So that has been our experience consistently. Mm-hmm. We will go to all black spaces, church with grandmommy, go visit grandmommy, go, you know, recently we went to Montgomery where there's a new lynching memorial. And we went to the church where Dr. King used to preach as part of our learning uh, journey. And we were embraced. We were welcomed. Um, by the same token, when we go to Hindu temples, and I want my children to learn what that experience is like and how to worship like Indians do, we don't receive that same kind of warmth. We receive a very suspicious kind of like, what are you doing here? So I think that has been our, sadly, our experience is that my children have, have that to go on, and I'd like to reset that. I'd like mm-hmm. to bring them to brown environments where they're welcomed. So I'm going to ask you a very general question. Feel free to answer it in any, any way you see fit. Uh-huh. What is it like to raise Indian or a South Asian Black biracial children in America today? Yeah, I think the word I would use is um, heart-wrenching. <laughs> I guess those are two words. Um, so what I don't believe in doing is shielding children from the realities that confront them. 
there is a parenting philosophy that believes you don't bring adult business to children. But the, the truth of the matter, since I've been an educator and pretty much taught all ages from preschool up to, to graduate school, what I know is that children do make sense of the world. And whether or not we as parents, as educators, want to talk to children about what's happening, they perceive it. And if we don't give them the tools to talk about it and process it, then they'll fill it in. They'll fill in the blanks with misinformation. So it's heart-wrenching because I remember a few years ago the umpteen stories of young Black men that were shot or otherwise targeted that we cannot get to a break from. And I realized that I needed to really educate my child about who he is and to understand his Blackness and what it means in America today. And that challenge is heart-wrenching. It, it, you know, because you want him to feel a sense of empowerment. You know, what we wish for for our children is that they feel good about who they are and feel confident in taking on challenges and strive to be their best selves. And yet they live in an environment that is actually undermining that. And so I want them to know about it. And so I'm very open. I'm very open with my children in talking to them about what's happening and how it impacts them. This week, you know, the whole U.S. Open Serena thing was an example. So I use a lot of real life teachable moments. You know, I said, this is what happened to Serena. And I talked to my daughter, Verica, um, you know, and I said, this is what's happening. What do you, what do you think is happening here? And we unpacked that and we talked about how, you know, we as girls, as brown girls, are expected to be quiet, are expected to conform, are expected to obey. That was a thing that was like very South Asian Indian culture, is this obedience, right, And as girls. And I, I didn't believe in that. I don't believe in obedience to unfairness. So I told my daughter, I was like, you know, be more like Serena. If someone's being unfair to you, speak up. Advocate for yourself. Being polite if you have to be, because we don't have to be polite in the face of injustice. So that's kind of how I raise them. I just kind of talk about those things and I kind of give them a framing and give them a, but it's heart wrenching because very often these conversations are challenging, but we keep showing up to them. Do you ever wonder what it would have been like if you and your husband had joined your brother back in Botswana or some other part of sub-Saharan Africa? <laughs> we tried. We did. <laughs> Before my dad passed away, I had had a lot of guilt. I was raised to come to the U.S. to study and bring your education back to Africa. That's how I was raised, and that was my aspiration. I ended up meeting Charles. I ended up, you know, having children who needed, uh, you know, supports and tools that weren't available in Africa. So we ended up being in the States. Uh, both my children have a lot of food allergies and, like, health challenges, and so it's very hard to, to move elsewhere in the world um, with that. And thankfully, in the U.S., we're able to manage it somewhat. So those were all deterrents and reasons why we ended up not moving back life you know plus my in-laws live right here in Atlanta and they're aging you know my mother-in-law is 87 mm -hmm. so we've got those considerations and you know a few years ago I just kind of had a midlife crisis I think it was shortly after my 40th birthday and I was like I'm going back to Botswana to be with my family and we packed it up we you know packed up and sold our belongings and moved to Botswana and we got there and we were like uh oh <laughs> <laughs> Charles and I had had an agreement that if we moved to Botswana and any one of the four of us was not hitting the survival mark, we weren't even trying to thrive, okay? 
it's like if we weren't coping with the culture difference, with the new environment, whatever, if we, our health wasn't kind of on the okay level, that we would then revisit the decision. So we ended up revisiting the decision, moving back to the States and starting our lives over. How long were you in Botswana? We were there for six months. Oh, wow. Okay. So mm-hmm. it was pretty quick. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Neither he nor I found work. Ironic. We're overqualified. Mm-hmm. He's a PhD and has multiple master's degrees in artificial intelligence. And, you know, I'm an educator with a PhD from Stanford, but we couldn't find work. Wow. Did you think about trying another country in Sub-Saharan Africa? Or was we do all the time. In yeah. fact, this year, what we've done is decided to so-called homeschool our children. Uh, it's kind of a misnomer, but we pulled them from formal schooling. They were both attending independent schools and alternative schools. And I'm schooling them myself when we're home, and then we travel. That's why we're going to India. We're going to actually do some travel world schooling this year. So this academic year, um, my son's ninth grade year and my daughter's sixth grade year seem like the time to expose them to the parts of the world that I was very fortunate and blessed to learn about and be from. Mm -hmm. So that's how we're doing it. You know, since you asked me that question about raising them to understand their South Asian heritage, um, we'll travel to India and meet the relatives and learn firsthand. What kind of lessons are you hoping they're going to learn from your, however much time abroad? You know, I hope they'll learn the nuances of Indian culture. I hope they'll understand the love and the joy and that the, the, that they'll get to dance and see the bright colors and festivity of Diwali and experience the specialness of Pai Duj and be around my buas and my cousins and just experience the mirth and the playfulness and the teasing. And I'm just really excited for them to experience that because they've never experienced that. Um, and, and, you know, this is a hard experience. It's not something you can read about in a book. And I'm really hoping that they all see themselves in all of those experiences and know that their heritage on their mother's side is that. Um, I hope that they'll develop a curiosity about India and South Asia and begin to want to learn more about it. Uh, And I hope that they'll learn a few Hindi phrases. Is there going to be an extended stay? At least a month. Yeah, our family trips back to India were always at least that month because it took so long just to get there. Yeah. And, you know, and I'm hoping that they'll be disrupted. And by that, you know, when I teach in the classroom, meeting college students, and I bring them with me to Trinidad in the Caribbean. Um, and I, what I hope to do when I bring people abroad as part of a learning experience, not just kind of a holiday or a vacation, is that they'll, they'll rethink who they are in the world by what they experience. So they'll be disrupted. That is my hope, actually. Mm-hmm. The most penultimate hope in bringing them to India is that they all rethink who they are and their worldviews um, and become more embracing and more accepting of differences and just rethink some of the things that they've already learned by being in American classrooms and schools because they've taken, they've, they've accepted, you know, you hinted at that earlier. They, they learn things and they hear things in the media that are prejudiced towards India. And I don't, I don't want them to hold on to that. I want them to experience what, the media doesn't tell them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You no, know? the nuances. Awesome. Um, let's see. I think those are all the questions that I had prepared. Um, is there anything else that I can ask or something else that's on your mind? Well, let's see. You know, I, a lot on my mind. I have a lot to, to talk <laughs> yeah. about. Um, but, you know, most of all, I wanted to return to this notion I um, brought before is about intersectionality and that how 
you know, we as South Asians, um, you know, often miss out on understanding the layered identities that we have. Um, and that, you know, part of my reluctance to claim only a Desi identity is because it's only one of many aspects of who I am, right? My Indian heritage is only one part of it. Uh, the Indian languages I speak are only one part of it. And for many of us actually who are growing up now, you know, we have those push and pull identities and we are forced to pick one. Um, and, you know, my belief, and, I, and this is what I impart to my students and my children, is that we have to see ourselves like that there are many parts of who we are and, and being of Indian descent is just one part. Um, and I live up to that, right? Because again, you know, to review where we've been, you know, I was, I was born in Tanzania, raised in Botswana, now live in Atlanta, you know, I'm going to go see my family in India, I teach about the Caribbean and the, the Indian diaspora in the Caribbean. So, you know, this, these are just examples of how in my life, I try to kind of convey that, that there are so many different ways of being Indian in the world. Um, I'm one example. Mm-hmm. Yeah, <clears throat> I think Americans, and it's funny you bring up Trinidad because I went to Trinidad for about 10 days in 2013 and I was just kind of fascinated by yeah. how like integrated so many different races were and how it just wasn't yeah. one issue because everybody was under this umbrella of Trinidadian and there was a real sense of pride of that. Yes. And I do think that Americans have that in some sense, but it's always kind of in this whitewash, like patriotic, let me hold up the flag kind of thing. It's never as like this hybrid identity. So I don't know. Like like that throughout the Caribbean. And I, you know, and I often speak to my children about bringing them there. I've Mm -hmm. been there multiple times with students, but my children haven't been. And I tell them, you know, you would fit right in. Yeah, no, exactly. It's and funny. One of the places where everybody will know how to say your name. It, it was the most, let's talk about names, okay? Let's talk about how coming to the U.S., you know, my name alone gave people headaches and they wanted to call me Guy. And I said, no, that means cow in the language that I come from. So don't do that. Don't call me Guy. You know, and, and the fights I have when people see my name and mispronounce it, even though they work with me day to day. Every day they work with me, they still mispronounce my name. And that's an erasure of who I am. You know, I'm named after a goddess from the Hindu scriptures. Come on, people. So, you know, that naming alone, imagine going to a place like Trinidad and I land there and look at my passport and they pronounced it perfectly and they know exactly what that name means and I just nearly cried. I melted. I am in Trinidad and people know Gayatri is a name. They can pronounce and they know its meaning. Isn't that so meaningful? Yeah, no, I, I totally, I get it. I mean, I, I didn't understand it to the extent I do now, ironically, because yeah. my grandmother's luckily very accepting. And she saw this documentary that was done of uh, Queens. You know, I'm a New Yorker. I've been in New York for a long time. And she was uh-huh. like, oh, where you are in Queens, like there's all these Indo-Guyanese people, as they call yes. them. And she was uh-huh. like, her mind was just blown away because this is a world in which black people and Indian people coexist on like an equal level. <laughs> like, yes, intermarry, intermingle, they intermarry, yeah, they inter, <laughs> they intermarry, they have kids. There's all like shades of Indian and black all throughout the Caribbean. And that's somehow, even though it's so close to America, like really just a couple hundred miles away from the coast. Actually, growing up even in, in East Africa, in Mauritius and Seychelles, you saw the same thing you see in Trinidad and Guyana you know, is that you have yeah. the intermingling of the But you have to go to the islands to see it. Like, you don't even see it on the continent. You do have to go to the islands, but it's really important to children, you know, that yeah. they see themselves where they are. Um, and one of the reasons we chose to live in the Atlanta area was that it was very intentional. We used to live in the Bay Area because, you know, we were 
um, we worked in the Silicon Valley and I went to graduate school there. Um, but when it was time to raise a family, Charles and I were very intentional about where would we like to raise brown, black, they see American children, like where? Where they would experience themselves wherever they went and feel a sense of, I'm from here. And so we chose Atlanta and there are many other Blasian families we run yeah. into on yeah. a regular basis. You know, when we go to festivals, when we go to the bookstore, when we go to the library, wherever we go, we see people like us. And mm -hmm. that's a real fortunate thing, which isn't a given a lot of places in the U.S. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Or sure. the world. Yeah. There's a lot of East Africa, Indo-Africans who came to Alabama and Georgia, right? Yes, yes, exactly. Uh, and they exist. But they're very insular, I've noticed. There's very little intermarrying. Now, this is something that used to get me going, too, is living in Africa, how I am the oddity. I'm the, I am the exception because a majority of the other brown girls I grew up with did not marry outside of their race. They actually stayed within their caste. They st stayed within their gender heterosexual, heteronormative uh, structures. They stayed within, you know, like really down to all of that and, and, and stayed with it. Whereas I've been like, wait a minute, mm, can we rethink that? <laughs> so I think that's another whole other conversation we could have about why I'm a reluctant South Asian is because part of our culture ends up being very casteist and very prejudiced. And I don't, I don't do that. I can't. Yeah. That's exhausting, right? It's exhausting to hate. <laughs> yeah. Because if that's what it means to be Indian, then I don't want to be that. Yeah. You, you know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. So I don't want to, I don't want to toss out all the beautiful heritage. I want to have a, a meaningful relationship with my culture mm -hmm. and my heritage and if it means that you're going to say to me, you're not a, a, a real Daisy because you don't, you know, you married outside your race. Okay, fine. I, well, you know, I mean, it is just comes back to that racism and colorism because I don't see anybody yeah. ever questioning somebody's Indian or Daisy identity when they marry somebody who's white. Well, exactly. And I bring that double standard up all the time because one of my uncles, and I will tell the story, he might hear this, you know, really had a lot of commentary. He lives in the US and called my mother to disagree with my choice of partner. And I pointed out to my mama, I was like, uh, he's married to a white lady. Uh, hello. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But, he married, you know, he married up in his head. That's what, that's what it comes down to. Well, because, because he's male, he gets to make different choices, right? Mm -hmm. uh, because she's white, then that's somehow acceptable. You know, so there's just so many double standards and that's not, that's not cool with me. That's not something that I let slide around me. So I know that a lot of, you know, very conventionally they see people are nervous around me because uh, they know that this auntie don't play that. <laughs> yeah, if we, can't, if we can't be racist, then what do we talk about? <laughs> well, no, and we can't be heterosexist and we can't be transphobic and we can't be Islamophobic. And that's another one. That's another one that yeah. I, you know, despite the fact that our families you know, during the partition came to India because they were of Hindu descent, you know, my nephews are Muslim, right? I married, you know, when I married Charles, he was part of a Sufi order. Yeah. I cannot be Islamophobic. I'm so sorry, but I don't play that. Do not bring that around me because, uh, no, we are one people. We speak the same language. We eat the same food. It was the same land before somebody put a random border around it. So that's just kind of, those are the conversations I'm always having with other South Asians. <laughs> I'm an outlier in that way. Yeah. But I start the conversations. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's important to not shy away.
Yeah, and I think that's what it is, is that I decided that I wasn't going to be a professor in the conventional sense, but to bring some of these stories of my life, to bring some of these things, write verses about them, you know, in my 40s. I'm like, why not use my voice, my words, my life, my experiences, my stories to bring light to some of these things? All right. Well, any other questions I can ask or any other lingering thoughts to add? Um, I just wanted to thank you for this opportunity. Yeah, I really you. love talking about these topics and themes of identity and culture and heritage and parenting. I mean, so I really have enjoyed this conversation and cannot thank you enough for the opportunity to talk about those things. Yeah. yeah you're very so welcome. Fun. Thank you for your time. I really appreciate that. Oh, yeah, well, so I love to talk uh, heart to heart, mind to mind. And you really asked me some wonderful questions that made me think also. Awesome. I'm very glad to hear that. Thank you as well, Guy3, for your time and your perspective. A lot of what we covered over these two episodes are not discussed enough in the media, and I'm sure many of our listeners will walk away thinking about race relations and South Asian cultural assimilation in ways they haven't before. I know I am, and I really thank you for that. To our listeners, thank you as well for your time. Join us next time on They See Women Diaspora, a podcast about South Asian women who grew up around the world. This episode of They See Women Diaspora was written, produced, and recorded by Mala Kumar, with editing by Kiran Kumar. Our intro and outro music was written and recorded by Joseph McDade. Find him on Patreon at patreon.com slash josephmcdade. And of course, special thanks to our interview guest, Gayatri Sethi.